So I'm going to have an old man, old guy moment here. I know I'm only 50, but still, this is an old guy moment. When I, was, um, when I was growing up, we only had three channels on the television. Sometimes four, depending on the weather. But the fourth one was PBS, and what kid wants to watch PBS? I mean, Sesame Street came on there, and Electric Company came on there. But I didn't get those very often, so we didn't get to watch it. Saturday morning cartoons, that was pretty much it. That was children's programming, you know, that was Saturday morning cartoons. And I can remember watching being one of the worst things that could happen to me as a kid while I'm watching TV was for a talking head to break on the screen and say the words, we interrupt this regularly scheduled programming to give you breaking news. Now, I know there's a generation or two in here that has no idea what I'm talking about. That's why I said it's kind of an old guy moment. And, uh, and so, you know, we didn't have cell phones either. We had to walk uphill to school both ways in the snow, that whole thing, right? Um, but these, these breaking news moments, as I got older, I realized these were actually big deals. These were big news events. These were things worthy breaking into Roadrunner, being chased by Wiley Coyote and, and announcing, Right? I mean, the assassination of JFK was one of those breaking news events. Uh, the the uh, attempted assassination of President Ronald Reagan was one of those events. The fall of the Berlin Wall, the death of Princess Diana, of all things, the O.J. Simpson car chase. I watched that in the most rural place in Alabama you've ever seen in your life. Turn on the TV, it's like, what in the world is this? And uh, this is kind of entertaining, right? Slowest car chase ever in California, right? 9-11 was one of those events. Uh, the death of Osama bin Laden by SEAL Team 6 was one of those break-in, regular scheduled programming. And as an adult, I realized these were a big deal. But as a kid, eight-year-old boy, I just wanted to know if Scooby-Doo caught the bad guy. That's really all I wanted to know. But in the middle of the Joseph narrative we have this level of interruption in Genesis chapter 38. It's big news. It's a brief story concerning Judah, Joseph's brother. And it covers a broad span of Judah's life. It actually covers a, takes place over about 20 years. It begins not long after Joseph, almost immediately after Joseph is sold into slavery and would end actually after the famine is over. Added because the from Joseph being sold into slavery to the end of the famine was 17 years. Added to this is some very bizarre and some oddly graphic details of a story in the Bible and it speaks to truth but it also brings some vivid discomfort. It's a stark interruption into our regularly scheduled programming on Joseph. So we need to ask the question, why is this here? This seems out of place. It seems odd. It seems like an interruption. Why is it here? And that's what I want us to look at today. Why is chapter 38 here? Let's look at it through the different sections of the story and see if we can figure out why this chapter interrupts our Joseph story. Beginning in verse 1, it says, It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. 
There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he, he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. Now, we need to set up this story. Judah leaves the brothers not long after Joseph sold into slavery. Remember, it was Judah's idea to sell him into slavery. Hey, look, let's pull him out of the pit. We can make some money. We can sell him as a slave. There's some Ishmaelites headed down the, down the road. So Judah leaves the brothers. He's, uh, he's got a little extra spending money. He's got his livestock. He's single. He's single, ready to mingle. I mean, that's what he's got going on here. Uh, Judah's the fourth, Jacob's fourth son. We've got Reuben, Simeon, and Levi who had been disappointments to their father. They had, had, had fallen into some significant moral failure. Now Judah joins these three brothers in his own sinful experiences. He, he, um, he, he began at the same point where a lot of young men's troubles began. He meets a friend named Hira. He, he, he moves away from the family. He moves near this friend who's also a Canaanite. And, and Hira's not a great influence on young Judah. And then Judah marries a Canaanite. The Bible never tells us her name, just tells us who her dad is. But by marrying a Canaanite, Judah has already begun a path of disobedience. He's committed one of the biggest no-nos you can commit as a son of Israel. He's married outside the family. He's married a Canaanite. I mean, this has been happening all through the book of Genesis. You remember back, Esau, what did Rebekah say about Esau's kids? I mean, Esau's wives. Good Lord, please don't let Jacob marry somebody like that. I don't think I can handle it. I mean, how many times in Scripture do we find the breakdown of true faith happening because of the children of believers marrying into unbelieving families. So he takes a wife from the Canaanites. And it wasn't like Judah didn't have good examples. It wasn't like he didn't know. He would have had to have known that his dad was sent 400 miles away to find a wife from within the family. He knows the history of his uncle Esau's wives. He would know about... Abraham and Sarah, I mean, he would know this was not the right way to do things. It didn't matter. He's rebellious. That's where he is. That's where he founds himself in his life. God had told his people, do not marry unbelievers. And look, that hasn't changed in the new covenant. It's still true today. Judah adds to this marriage three sons. One son he names, two sons, the wife names. He names the first son Ur. These are the sons grow up, and Judah begins finding them wives. He finds Ur a wife, beginning in verse 6. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up her offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. 
And then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah grows, my son grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in his father's house. Now this section is bizarre to understand. If you don't know the historical context and the cultural significance of what's happening here. Honestly, it's, it's bizarre even if you do know the historical context and the cultural significance of what's happening here. God has killed Ur for his wickedness, and we're not told what that is. We, we can't even really guess. There's, a, there's something called the Leverate Law, which literally, the Leverate literally means brother-in-law. In the ancient Near East law that was actually codified in uh, Deuteronomy 25, I believe, um, stated that if the first brother died and did not have any children, that it was the responsibility of the next brother in line to marry that, his brother's widow and produce children that would actually be the older brother's legal children. This is an inheritance thing, and it also was tied to some stuff related to the widow. So the brother then had to conceive a child with her who would be counted as the descendant of the dead brother, and not only would he have to marry the woman he didn't choose, he would have to have a child with her that would not count as his own. Now the reason for this is it would continue the line of the firstborn who was the one who would receive the inheritance. There was also a social safety net aspect to this tied to widows. Um, and so it would have helped the family because it would have kept all the possessions in the family. They wouldn't have ended up leaving if, if um, the, the wife leaves. And, and the thing was, though, if, if this didn't happen, this wife could not remarry. She was considered a widow forever, and if she did remarry, it was considered adultery. Onan doesn't want this job. Notice it says that Onan is going to have sexual relations with Tamar. It never actually says there was a proper marriage. This doesn't just happen once, but Onan goes to Tamar repeatedly in this selfish, disobedient act. He's willing to have sex with Tamar, but he did not want to produce an heir. The text tells us why, and it just gets even worse, because he knew that any sort of offspring produced by Tamar is not really his offspring. So proudly and selfishly and extremely demeaning to Tamar herself, he barely treats her like a, a, a woman, much less a wife. He wants gratification without responsibility. He doesn't want any self-sacrifice. He, he, and honestly, this is not new. This, this is literally the, the, the culture we live in right now is, is, is related to sex. Gratification without responsibility. It's why there's so many people so upset about the, the recent uh, overturning of Dobbs and Roe. Onan thinks he's being sneaky, but he knows, Tamar knows, obviously, and guess who else knows? God knows. Now, Onan is also killed by God for his wickedness, not for the act itself but for the disobedience and the selfishness that led to the act. So with Onan dead, Shelah should be the one to step in and fulfill the Leverate law. But Jacob basically lies to Tamar and says, hey, look, 
Shelah's not old enough to get married yet, so what you need to do is you need to go back home to your father, live as a widow, give me a few years. When he grows up, we'll, we'll get this thing worked out. We'll bring you back. Y'all can get married and start having kids. So, and, and, but the text tells us, but Jacob's lying. He actually thinks that Tamar's cursed or bad luck or something because uh, he has, I mean, let's be honest, he has lost two sons that have married this woman. But the reality is, is Tamar in this situation with Jacob now, I'm with, uh, uh, sorry, Judah has been extremely wronged based on Leverite law. Tamar has rights under the Leverate law, and she's about to exert those rights in a clever and very underhanded way. So let's read in verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. So this is, this is Judah's, Judah's wife. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend, Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. And when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. And then she arose, went away, taking off her veil. She put on the garments of her widowhood. Now, if you thought this story couldn't get any more sleazy, you just hadn't kept reading. <laughs> by this point, Tamar obviously realizes that Jacob's lying. Shalai's not coming. He's old enough now. The, 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 I don't know how much time expired, but some significant time has expired. She takes off the widow's garments, which were a robe she would have, that would have publicly revealed to her, everyone, that she was a widow. And that means that for the rest of her life, she cannot remarry. She would have to live as a widow. And, and, and at this point, she would have still been rather young. Because of the, the Leverate law, as long as Shelah is alive, she's still bound to him, waiting on him. And Tamar then decides to take matters in her own hands. She's like, no, Judah's lying. You know what's interesting to note in this, this text is that uh, sorry, Tamar is never condemned in the passage. Now, she's obviously not being set up as an example of how we should live, right? But this shrewd, bold act is not condemned in this text. Now, I'm, sh I'm not sure anyone in this story has done the right thing, but if anybody has, it would be Tamar. I'm not saying she had, I'm saying if there's anyone. She said, what, what will you give me? And they had this whole exchange, and it gets really weird. Notice Judah's wife dies. And so 
she hears that. She, she puts on the attire of a prostitute, which the veil was the significant part of that. She dresses up in this. She goes and stands where the prostitutes would stand. We find out later that she was probably standing where the, um, the uh, temple prostitutes for Canaanite worship would have stood. So there would have been some idolatry going on on top of this prostitution, on, on the uh, infidelity. Judah sees her, and they have the strangest conversation Hey, what, what do we got to do here? Well, what do you give me? Well, I'll give you a goat. Well, I don't see a goat. Well, I, I, don't, have the, I don't carry goats with me. I, I'll have to go get the goat. Well, if you got to go get it, you got to leave me some collateral. So she says, leave me your signet, your cord, and your staff. Now, here's what those was signet, signified. It would have been like me asking you for your passport, your driver's license, and a set of your car keys. Where there's no way for you to ever say that we didn't exchange something. This, and and the, the, the signet was a family signet. The cord would have been unique, braided things that Judah would have worn that would have also been tied to the family. And the staff, these staffs, were usually pretty ornately carved and had seals on them that also were, were related to the family. And this particular staff would have signif- signified that uh, Judah was the head of the family. This is a very unique thing. And so Judah, at the end of this exchange, we see how quickly... Moral conditions changed, deteriorated as soon as the wife passes away, as soon as the grieving process is over. He doesn't seek another bride, he seeks a prostitute. Now, what was supposed to be, I'm sure in Jacob's mind, a simple, harmless, anonymous act of sin turned out to be complicated and embarrassing and scandalous. Because Leviticus 20.12 says that if a man lies with his son's wife, he's, he's, it's an abominable act, and that man should be put to death. This could potentially be one of the most scandalous things ever recorded in Scripture, and there's some pretty rough stuff in the Bible. And i got to think about how many times we commit sin without intending to harm anybody, but those actions inevitably harm way more people than we would ever possibly even know. And the insertion of this story in the middle of the Joseph narrative is what Robert Longacre calls a zone of turbulence. It's a device that biblical authors use to call attention to a small detail to prove a larger point. It's something that just seems so out of place that the out-of-place nature of it gets your attention. It's, it's, think of it like this. It's like you've got a convicted felon brother who shows up to your wedding by surprise drunk, pukes on the bridesmaids, 
throws the rings in the swimming pool and dumps the cake off and then walks off and leaves. That special day is ruined. The wedding will probably still happen, but only the memory you're going to have of the day is the drunk brother. It's ruined. That's this level of interruption. Judah is selfish. He's, although he's free, he, he, he has not yet done what's right. He follows his passion. He doesn't follow the Lord. He gives in to temptation whenever he shows up, and he reaps the long-term consequences of it. Joseph, on the other hand, is sold into slavery. He's a vehicle for blessing others, even when it cost him greatly. He makes decisions to thrive rather than to, to wallow in self-pity. He values character over temporary pleasures. He trusts God. He acts justly. He doesn't seek vengeance. Joseph seems like the perfect guy. And we'll learn in in Genesis that uh, Joseph is under Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife tries to uh, coerce Joseph to sleep with her, and Joseph flees from her. So much so where she grabs his cloak and he just lets that thing go and keeps going. She's holding on to the cloak. These two brothers could not be more different in their actions. And that's the contrast that's happening in this interruption. So let's look in verse 20. See how this story ends. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. When he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who is in Anam? At the roadside, they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, tomorrow your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. She was brought out. She sent word to her father-in-law by the man to whom these belong. I am pregnant. And he said, please. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son, Shalah. And he did not know her again. Now, I, you, I don't know about y'all, but I can picture this moment. I can see this in my head. This, Tamar set this up perfectly, right? And it worked out. So many things could go wrong, but it didn't go wrong. The trick worked. Judah's friend can't find her. Judah is afraid if he keeps going and trying to have somebody look for her, everyone in town's going to find out what's on his browser history in his laptop, right? If you know what I mean. A few months go by, and I'm sure Judah's forgotten about her at this point, but Tamar's not forgotten because she's got Judah's baby. Judah gets word to Tamar that uh, Judah gets word that Tamar is pregnant, and without even a hint of guilt on his part or allowing her to speak on her behalf, he judges her, says, "Let's go burn her," which was not his role to judge her, not according to the law. 
He declares she should be burned for adultery. It reminds me of Nathan coming into David after David has had the affair with Bathsheba, had Uriah killed. Nathan comes in and says, hey, I got these two families. One's rich, one's poor. One had one sheep. The rich family took the one sheep and, and chopped it up and ate it. What should we do? And David said, kill that man. Nathan said, you're that guy. It's the same situation. Both of these men, David and Judah, and when they were confronted with their sin, somebody else's sin, rose up in righteous indignation. Well, let me back up. They rose up in self-righteous indignation when they were confronted with somebody else's sin. Kill them. Burn her. Tamar was ready. She knew it was coming. She was like, okay. Send these to Judah and say, okay, I know you're going to want to know who the man is, so it's the guy that owns these, the signet and the cord and the staff. And what was Judah's response? Now, based on what we've read about Judah up to this point, my expectation of Judah's response would have been, oh, she's a liar. She must have broken into my house and stole these things. But there is a dramatic shift that, in the story that happens right here. Judah said, she's more righteous than I am. She's right, I'm wrong. I did not do what I was supposed to do. I did not treat her the way she was supposed to be treated. I say dramatic because I cannot think of one other instance in Genesis up to this point where any of these chosen people of God were confronted with their sin and they immediately owned it. We've, we've been in Genesis a long time and we've seen a host of sins from these people. We've seen them grow and repent and change, some quicker than others, but none as fast as Judah did in this moment right here. When his sin is found out, he doesn't make excuses. He says, tomorrow's more righteous than I am. This should be our response when we're confronted with our sin. There is a question in this text, though. How should we respond when we're confronted with somebody else's sin? Part of the lesson is here in this is less obvious that your sins will find you out. You may think no one saw, God sees, eventually you will reap what you sow. They get caught, and with all the times they sin, all through the book of Genesis, their sin gets exposed. We see these patriarchs grow. We don't always see them owning up to their sin immediately, but we do see growth happening. Abraham lies to Pharaoh. Isaac lies to Abimelech. Sarah's scheme with Hagar to get a son, if you remember that. Rebecca's scheme over Isaac and uh, Jacob and Reuben's sin with Bila and Jacob's deceit with the brother and Rachel's stolen goods and Simeon and Levi's revenge, and over and over and over, we've seen these chosen people act pretty wicked at times. But the conclusion of this passage tells us so much. Let's read in verse 27. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out her hand, and the put out a hand. And the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. 
But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. Why is this story here? Why, why this interruption? Why this, in this place, in this moment? I'll tell you why. This tells us the beginning of the end. Tomorrow gives birth to twins by Judah. Follow with me. All right? Tomorrow gives birth to twins by Judah. The circumstances are less than ideal. Then, and she gives birth to Perez and Zerah. Perez, the younger, comes out first, who will eventually become Boaz. From that line will come David and Josiah and all of the kings that you may know as you read through the Old Testament. And eventually from this same line, this union of Judah and Tamar comes Jesus Christ. Not Joseph. Judah. Christ comes from the line of Judah. It's impossible to not make comparisons between Joseph and Judah. That's why this is in the pad. That's why this is inserted where it's inserted. Joseph is upheld as righteous, obedient hero, and he should be. Because he lived righteous, he didn't give in to temptation, he didn't, he didn't live making these selfish decisions. But the Messiah comes from the relationship between Judah and Tamar. What in the world do we do with that? Well, for one, don't make excuses for it. I mean, sin shouldn't be excused regardless of the result. There's no question Judah acts sinfully. He turns from his family. He turns from righteousness. He marries a Canaanite woman. He refuses to fulfill his obligations to the law. And all these deeds are planned out. These are premeditated acts. And... and the book of Proverbs tells us the mind of, the man, of a man plans his way, but Yahweh directs his steps. Talked about it a little bit last week. said man plans, God laughs. And so we see that out of the wicked plans and the acts of men, God brings good and just purposes. And it's through Judah and this illicit, illicit relationship with the daughter-in-law that God brings Israel to its greatest earthly king, David, and the divine king, Jesus Christ. Despite man's wickedness, God's seed will come to pass. And this is how God's used people throughout all the ages, including even today. Why? Because God uses imperfect people for his glory. God uses people despite the fact that we sin. And the heart of the story found in here is God using his people, transforming his people and allowing grace in their lives as they sin. Despite that still accomplishes his work. And this tells us that Christianity is not reserved for the worthy and the pious. It's reserved for those who realize they need grace 
and mercy, and they willingly surrender to the grace that God's offering. Do you know there's five women listed in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1? Could y'all name them? If you thought about it, you probably could. It's Tamar's one, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Four Gentile women and Mary. Which is another point that Jesus came to save people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, not just the Jews. But, side note, out of those five women, at least four of them were involved in some type of sexual scandal. Tamar, obviously, we talked about her. Rahab was a prostitute. Bathsheba, who was taken by David to be his wife after an extramarital affair. And then Mary, who appeared to everyone that didn't get a visit from an angel that she had, was pregnant out of wedlock. All five of them outsiders. What do I mean by outsiders? Well, you know who's not listed? The matriarchs. Sarah? She's not listed in that genealogy. Rebecca? Even Esther is not listed. Esther, one of the most virtuous women in the Bible. She's not listed. All the righteous matriarchs of the Old Testament, none of them are mentioned in the genealogies. Now they're in there. They're just not mentioned. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, Mary. That's who's mentioned. And I don't know about you, but I read these things and I'm like, this, it, as we go through Genesis, I cannot help but see how patient and gracious a holy God is with his people I'm like, dear God, why are you so patient? I'm not saying don't be patient. I'm just asking why. I see grace here for Tamar. I see a lot of grace for Judah. And it causes me to even reconsider in my own life, how gracious have I been to people? When people come to me and say, hey, so-and-so's in sin... Now, look, I'm not talking about ignoring sin. We should not ignore sin. We should hold our brothers and sisters in Christ accountable for sin. We shouldn't pretend it's okay to sin. We shouldn't. But when someone comes and they have a sin and they have that moment like Judah where they say, I'm wrong, I'm not the righteous one here, I don't know that I've always handled that with grace. I hear about, you know, these big name preachers that fall for some reason. And the first thing I do is judge them for just being stupid. And then I give myself about five minutes and then go, uh, yeah, buddy, you, you better get a better attitude. Don't sit here and pretend you got it all figured out. But why is that my gut reaction? That's my initial reaction. Christianity is not reserved for the worthy. So here's the question. Knowing the story of God's grace for his people, God's grace for Tamar, God's grace for Judah, how much grace will you have for others? Are you willing to have the patience that God had with people to allow God to be the one to change the people, to see grace in other people's lives? We allow grace for others. Are you willing to be a part of that process even when it gets ugly? How about this? Will you believe in grace for yourself? 
There's a, there, I, I run across Christians all the time, and, I, and I've, I've got some issues with this in my past. There's a lot of Christians who don't seem to be able to forgive themselves for something God's already forgiven them for. I heard one preacher say, it's, it's not an act of humility to act as if God can't forgive you. That's just adding sin to sin because you're just again thinking that your story is about the works, your works before God. That's just more sin because that's not the way forgiveness works. You think God's exhausted his grace for you, for your family, for your sins. And if the Messiah can be born from the relationship between Judah and Tamar, then do you not think God doesn't have enough grace for you? Grace for others and grace for yourself. And then I think about those who have never experienced the saving grace of God. Realizing Christ came from this relationship explains so much to me about the extent of grace and the extent of the cross. And I I long for everyone to be able to say at some point in their life, I experienced grace. Not just a moment of grace, but eternal grace, eternal mercy. It came through the salvation of Jesus Christ dying on the cross. 